They shoot the shit. They shoot, they shoot the shit. Shoot, 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 shit, shit, shit. Shooting the shit with Chippa. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Shooting the Shit with Chippa. As always, I'm the Chippa. Um, this show is, you know, not at all like any other shows I do where I talk to people. I swear. And it's nothing like the Chipman Brothers Tangent because Bob isn't here. Um, so right before I introduce my guest, I'll do a little bit of housekeeping. Um, I'd like to thank my $15 or more a month patrons, as I am known to do. Mason, Christopher Finnick, Patricia Chipman, my mom. Hey, mom. Hugh K. Campbell Jr., Alex Peregrine, and Kevin C.V. And Kevin C.V. and Russ Burlingham are my two newest patrons, so I'd like to thank them as well. Um, and as a lot of these shows are, um, this episode is brought to you by the folks over at Engaged Family Gaming. I've had uh, Stephen Dutzman on now an episode of Creating Geeks with my wife, and I've also had him on um, the Talkbuster podcast because he used to work at Blockbuster. He runs a slew of game review, either video game, board game, goes to conventions with his kids and his wife and his friends, and he's a blast. Um and uh, you should check his stuff out. So that's engagedfamilygaming.com. And without further ado, I'd like to introduce yet another guest I've had on this show that I have never met and barely know anything about, but he's a fan. So I'm um, happy to have him on. Introduce yourself, good sir. Thank you, sir. My name is Robert Aldrich. I am a novelist and writer based out of uh, the dubiously fine city of Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Um, I tour conventions and talk about sci-fi fantasy and other geek stuff. Um, outside of that, I work for the North Carolina Health Department and the Cancer Registry, and I teach martial arts. That's awesome. So that's, that's, that's a lot to digest in and of itself. So you have many hobbies <laughs> and, and employments. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm not sure if they're hobbies or addictions, but something thereof. Yeah, that, that's that's what this whole thing is, right? It's a hobby slash addiction slash um, attempt to make people smile, I guess yeah. is the whole idea. Um, so, uh, yeah, but before I get into, um, since I don't know much about your novels or anything, mm -hmm. I did a little reading before you got here. T tell me a little bit about yourself. Like, where are you, uh, you know, did you, have you always been in North Carolina? Yeah, uh, off and on. I've... Let, I've come to North Carolina, left, and found my way back time and time again. I've lived all over the U.S. I've lived in uh, Utah, which is a better state than most people realize. I've lived in Kentucky, which is a better state than its politicians deserve. Um, <laughs> I, uh, That's a good one. Yeah. Um, I, I, I've lived in South Carolina, Tennessee, all over the place, and um, just managed to always kind of find my way back here to the Part of Dixie and gerrymandering, um, and uh, it, it's given me a very broad perspective. Uh, some of my books are actually set in some of those places in North Carolina or uh, in Utah and uh, um, uh, Kentucky, places like that. It's actually been kind of interesting. Very early in my career, because of my connection to Utah and North Carolina, I got some comparisons to Orson Scott Card, who kind of split his time between um, Utah and North Carolina. And I, I was a big fan of Ender's Game, and so I was really flattered by that comparison. And then I read other things by Card, and I was not quite as flattered by that comparison. I was about to ask you, oh man, you're uh, 
I hope you don't share some of the later later workings, um, no. <laughs> politics and things with Scott Card. Because again, I read Ender's Game in high school and was blown away by it. And yeah. I'm like, oh yeah, what else has this guy written? And then I went, oh, oh no. Oh, I've written, yeah. <laughs> I, um, the uh, Alvin Maker series, I think, is a little bit better than people realize. I don't think it, it's not as good as Ender's Game or even the Ender's series. But um, yeah, Ender's Game is a uh, is a seminal novel, and I feel like Card, I'm not sure he's been able to catch up to that, but if that's your one book, that's a hell of a book. Oh, it's, it, God, the world building in that book alone is insane. Oh, yeah, predicted the internet, what, 20, 30 years before it was really going anywhere? Message boards, chat rooms, all of that kind of stuff. It's insane. Yeah. Um. So, you, you were saying, so... People giving that comparison, and then you mentioned going around to sci-fi cons. So is yeah. that your is that your um, genre of choice? Uh, no, actually, it used to be anime. So here's the thing: um, when I first got started in writing, I published my first book in 2001, and I didn't want to be a writer or a storyteller. I actually hated it. Um, so I get, I read a book called the sword of Shannara, or, uh, it's a relatively well-known story. Um, have I was going to say that it? sounds, in, that sounds incredibly familiar. Yeah. The, the MTV did a Shannara series. Just oh, was that the sword time. of truth series? I don't think it was sort of truth. I think it was something else. Cause um, I, I remember it being put onto TV. I read the, maybe the first book of it is called the sword of truth. I feel like I read them all. Hmm. But I, um, I remember them doing a TV show, and um, I never watched it. Yeah. Uh, I watched uh, about five minutes of one episode of the Shannara series, and I was like, nope, we're good. Uh, and um, done. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, it, it, it also just wasn't for me. It was for, you know, it was PG Game of Thrones. And Yeah, that has to be the same series that I'm thinking yeah. of. Um, well, anyway, in the sort of Shannara, um, it's this kind of Arthurian's tale where this young boy has to go on a quest to find a magic sword. Yep, that's and, the one. Uh, what? Yep, Sorry. that's the one. <laughs> yeah. um, he goes on the quest to find the magic sword and to defeat the evil darkness, and at the end of the book, he finds the magic sword, and he faces off with the evil darkness, and he, you know, remembers stealing a cookie from the cookie jar, something when he was three, and that was bad. And he shouldn't be bad. And the realization of good and bad causes the sword to glow light, and the darkness recedes for another hundred years or something. And I was I was pissed. Um, I was in high school at that point. I was like, I've read three hundred pages, and for a book about a sword that I don't even end in a fight. Like, no. Um, <laughs> and, and at the time, I was really into anime. I was really, you know, this is the Japan anime movement, and I wanted to see that kind of stuff in literature. And I tried to write a story that brought everything I knew about anime and everything I loved about anime into literature. And uh, my first book, Crossworld, was the result of that. And I actually started touring at anime conventions, uh, promoting that book, saying, you know, this is not traditional literature. This is your kind of anime-inspired literature. I don't think fan fiction had really taken off, certainly not to my knowledge. No, definitely. I don't think it. I think in 2001, it might have been hidden in the doldrums of the internet. That's about it. Good old live journal. That's right. Oh. Um, 
so but pretty quickly on i would you know be at these conventions and i'd say i do anime style novels and they were like what is that and i quickly had to realize i needed to explain that and i began talking on anime and how it's different and how it's the same from comic books and from sci-fi fantasy and this whole kind of profession of uh speaking at conventions blossomed from that and i uh, i really enjoyed it i talked about um what makes anime and how it is different from comic books uh, how it's different from video games how we've seen elements of it filter into american animation um and the other way how american animation and american storytelling or american western style has filtered back into anime and how the two genres have diffused together yeah. That's fat. So you, um, so starting in 2001, you were going around to cons and you were just, so the speaking thing just kind of took off. Yeah. Um, cons, I found cons needed to fill, um, panel hours and they often needed to fill panel hours at odd times. Like they needed somebody to fill an, you know, a 10 AM panel or a 1 AM panel. And, uh, there were two or three conventions where, uh, there was one con where somebody like blew out his knee in the middle of the convention and they needed somebody to cover for his panel spaces. And so I quickly started to develop a reputation for, I will talk about whatever you want me to talk about as authoritatively as I have, um, lead time for, um, you know, I did a recently, I was doing a panels for a convention called Katsukon where I was giving presentations on the history of the Japanese-American internment camps in World War II. Oh, and, man. Yeah, I, and I did a... I mean, I talked to survivors of the camps. I did just... Uh, because they gave me plenty of notice and they gave me plenty of lead time. And so I was, you know, burning hours at the library and whatnot trying to dig up this presentation. So, point of note, that panel should not be topical, but it turned out to be. Um, yep. <sighs> Yeah, fun times. Yeah. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Cheer, cheers to the dark world we live in right now. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, so that, that's fascinating, man. So, you know, bringing up anime, it, it took a couple of years ago, I was on a show with some guys that were like, you know, hey, do this gone but not forgotten thing. And this thing popped into my head that I hadn't thought about since I was maybe four years old. Mm-hmm. But Nickelodeon in the morning in like the late eighties, early nineties would run whatever they could get their hands on. Mm -hmm. And they nabbed up this anime called the lost cities of gold. Have you ever heard of this? Oh yeah. Mysterious Uh, cities of gold. Yes. The mysterious cities of gold. And I figured, you know, just with, you know, the, your background and what you mentioned that you'd know about it. Cause everyone I mentioned to has never heard of it. And I'm like, man, I loved that thing. Like I, I, and the thing that, um, I found really fascinating and that someone else brought up to me and maybe you had some thoughts on this too, if you've ever dug into that show, but it was interesting to see an anime, especially from back, um, in the time when that show was made, that kind of reached outside of Japanese folklore and culture. Oh yeah. And, um, I don't know if that was if you found that to be equally as unique or if you have like a different thought or if there's others like it, maybe there were others like it. Um, So that was the product of um, 
in the late 70s, early 80s, a bunch of anime, anime studios in Japan were reaching out internationally for that very same thing, for exactly what you're talking about. You had um, animation studios. There's actually been a long-standing relationship between Japanese studios and French outfits. Yep. Um, and uh, I think Mysterious Cities of Goals was one of those. So interesting note, there was a boy band in the 80s called Menudo. Yep. And they did the theme song for Mysterious Cities of Gold. Oh, I didn't know that was Menudo. That's awesome. Yeah, that was Menudo. I think it may have been before Ricky Martin, but that was Menudo. Um, but yeah, so Esteban and the, and the Mysterious Cities of Gold, and um, there were there were some other things at that time that were fairly comparable. NHK, which was which is one of the major networks in Japan, they they did a bunch of this. They did uh, a series called like World Literature, where they did Heidi and the Alps and um, a bunch of classic stories. The Little Prince was another one that a lot of people vaguely remember. Yep, I remember also, that one. I'm sorry? I remember that one. Yeah, it was really good and really, really sad, but at least he didn't get bit by a snake. Um, <laughs> and then, uh, I'm sorry, was that too soon? Badoom. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but um, better than being bitten by Bob Tossey. But the... Uh, <laughs> the uh, the main thing that they're probably best known for is actually a series of uh, stories from the Bible. Um, I don't know if that was part, if that was connected to the uh, uh, any evangelical organization or just the fact that the Bible is a landmark work of literature, but um, some of those were really, really good as far as like animation and production quality. But they quickly got to the point where they were just throwing anything out there because they knew that. Um, uh, TBN or the TCN, whatever it was, the Christian Network, would air it. And so they'd get great distribution regardless of the quality, but some of the episodes were really good. Um, but yeah, Mysterious, City, Mysterious Cities of Gold is pretty well known. There's actually a, video, a new video game that came out. Uh, really? Yeah, on Steam in the last five-ish years. Um, I've heard pretty good things about it. I'll have to check that out. That show, it, it was one of those things that I saw it when I was so young that it, it just was in the back of my brain, you know? And everyone I would talk to was like, I don't know, because I couldn't remember the name of it. I'm just like, there were these kids, and they were hunting for treasure, the and there was a condor. big golden eagle, mm -hmm. or a golden condor, and they're like, we have no idea what you're talking about, Chris. And it took YouTube for me to like go in the early years of YouTube where I found the whole series run, and I'm like, see, I told you, this damn thing exists. I gotta, I gotta watch. You remember the kid who ate with his feet? Yep. And the the girl who could like read the future and the yeah. Oh, Thing was man. bonkers. Oh, so good. I'm so glad to find somebody that I don't have to like make Explain go watch it. that and then yeah. come talk to me about it. Well, yeah. Well, there was, there was a lot of that stuff because Nickelodeon needed to fill broadcast hours because their their main focus at the time was uh, Nick at Night. Yep. And um, you had the deregulation of the cable channels in the 80s, and they needed to fill broadcast hours, so they were finding anything from Japan, from Korea, from Thailand, and uh, optioning it and bringing it up here. And a lot of times, they were doing minimal translation and censorship, and because the FCA had only so many censors that they could view, some stuff got, I mean, like nudity to get through, but, um, you know, some, some racy stuff, some violence that you 
wouldn't be used to seeing, like, except for maybe on like Voltron or Robotech, were getting through. And it was it was a wild time, and there was a lot of good stuff that came through then. It was cool. It was like you know, it was the first little bubble mm-hmm. of like that kind of like making its gorilla way into the psyche of, I guess, the last like forty years generation of geeks, right? Because you know, I remember late nineties, early two thousands. You know, the, oh, you had to go, you know, know someone that worked at a Newbury Comics or in the back room of a Suncoast that mm-hmm. would find you Ninja Scroll, <laughs> you know, was about like, or, or oh, man, I've got a bootleg entire run of the original Dragon Ball show on VHS uh-huh. if you want to buy it, yeah. you know, and, and um, we had a local comic shop that are, we have a, a mall here, the Liberty Tree Mall, mm-hmm. and it <laughs> was, it was in really bad shape at the time, like they had, they had, uh, just closed down two or three stores they hadn't built the best buy that they attached to it and so like you know the old like ann and hopes and leech mirrors were dead mm-hmm. and they built a movie theater and a best buy and then in the wing where the ann and hope was they like had a almost like a mall flea market and you could come and buy like a table space like you were at a con mm-hmm. and so there was this guy who knew this local comic shop and the comic shop rented out half of their table to him. And he was an importer of anime and Japanese figurines. And so you could get like, you know, like legitimate Godzilla toys and, Uh and untranslated, you know, that's where I saw hero for the first time. Oh, wow. Right. The the Jet Li film before it got distribution over here, you know, and everything. And it's like, Oh, this is nuts. And, um, I, I loved I, I love that it's so mainstream now, but like, mm-hmm. you know, Toonami was still like three years away, right? right. At this time. So it's like, it, it, it's really cool. So, you know, ba- back to your talks, you know, I, I, I really, you know, I, I hope this isn't a bore for you because I'm, I, I wasn't sure where this topic was going to go. And now you're mm-hmm. tapping on something I haven't really talked much about on this show. So it's great. Please. But yeah. you, you've done a lot of research. So, you know, on, until you said, you know, anime kind of injecting itself into, um, Western culture and then vice versa. What would you say, like, if you had to look back where some of the first cartoon shows um, made in, like, the U.S. or, you know, Britain, like, pick one, that um, really felt a strong influence from from anime? Uh, Mighty Max. Oh, yeah. Mighty Max. Not so much in the animation style. They were still trying to go for, like, this... Um... <sighs> cartoon version of Rob Liefeld, this very 90s sort of feel. Yep. But uh, I, I would argue that Mighty Max um, incorporated some anime storytelling in the sense that it had a definitive pilot episode and a definitive final episode, which at that time was very rare in American cartoons. Extremely rare. Like they yeah. just kind of decided where it stopped and started at free random. Right. <laughs> and, and it ends rather, again, for a kid's cartoon, rather profoundly. Um, so kind of being in the anime scene and then trans- and then graduating into general animation uh, fandom and uh, discusser semi-professionally, um, I, you, you, have to dis- you, you have to decide like what makes a good cartoon and what doesn't. And I, it's never been about animation or voice acting, things like that. For me, it really came down to how the medium talked to kids. Um, in America, in the West, 
animation is still predominantly for children. And I don't think that's fundamentally bad. Um, it, it's aimed at children, I should say. And I, I would say in a lot of ways, you know, the Marvel movies and Star Wars and Star Trek and all of, you know, Doctor Who, those are aimed at kids. Right. Um, they they fit they're... they fit that same that same portal. Like right. it's like and, where uh-huh. Go ahead, sorry. I was just the the children are a lot smarter than people genuinely give generally give them credit for. Yep. I, I subscribe to the theory that a child by the time they're about five or six they're about as smart as they're going to be in their life. What the next 20, 30 years of schooling and whatnot is less about making them smarter and more about giving them the intellectual and educational vocabulary to express their ideas. Right. It's learning. The, it's learning the language of, um, yeah, of, intelligence. Of, of intelligence. Exactly. Because, you know, I find that I'm I'm an engineer and I work with a lot of really 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 smart people, mm-hmm. but you they they missed something in learning how to communicate their their intelligence to somebody else. So they're almost useless in a group setting. Right. If it's a problem they can solve on their own, they're great. You know what I mean? Um, and I find that you you know it's the same thing. You, you know I was just recently watching. Um, the new run of Are You Afraid of the Dark? Have you heard mm-hmm. that they did this? I, I know that it, I know that it kind of drags away from animation for a little while, but 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 it, but it hits the point that you just said. It it reminds me of a time where television and or movies or just entertainment understands that its audience isn't stupid mm-hmm. and doesn't need to be pandered to. And this show, like. It has everything that, like, a nowadays, like, Disney show or whatever made for teens would have in it. It's got, you know, like a hip song on the soundtrack. Mm-hmm. But I'm watching it and I'm going, why is it that this doesn't feel alien to me? Why does it not feel like it's making me feel like I can't enjoy this with my kid? You know, because, like, some things you watch now, you just go, this, this isn't for me. This I watch and I go, not only is this not really for me it's still made in a way that I can appreciate it. And it thinks my kids are old enough to be scared and are intelligent enough to figure out what's going on without having it force fed to them every Mm -hmm. single step of the way. And I miss that. And it was great to see they made this three episode run of this show that built on the lore of the original show Mm -hmm. and was just something that I'd, I'd be proud as like a parent to sit down and watch that with my kid when they're like, you know, five or six years old and know that it's probably going to scare the crap out of them a little bit, but there's nothing I would say that is, I don't know. There's nothing I would say that's scarring in it. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It's just, it's scary for the, it's like, it's like a lot of movies in the eighties. It's just, you know, and, and anime and, um, you know, other things that you mentioned, but yeah, back to what you were saying. I apologize. No, 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 that's fine. And you're totally right. I, I would argue that part of what made 80s cartoons so memorable is that a lot of them did not speak down to the audience. They spoke up to the audience. You know, Transformers talked about PTSD and war crimes. and Existentialism. You know, in, yeah, in the context of alien robots that turn into cars. Um, but in, in you have to, when you're dealing with a child, especially a young child, you have to strike a balance between exposing them to the world but not traumatizing them. And that's a very hard thing to run. I mean, a lot of kids, a lot of people, you know, my age, probably our age, 
you know, probably were still traumatized by the Ralph Bakshi Lord of the Rings or yep, yep. the Skeksis from um, Dark Crystal. Or the Black and, Cauldron. Yeah, or the, Black the five of us that saw it. Example. Um, and um, so, so there's a careful, and, and what makes a good cartoon is the ability to address these ugly truths of life but in a way that a child's mind can digest so they can begin to learn. And uh, I think the new She-Ra cartoon on Netflix is, is that way. That's a, that's a masterpiece. Yeah, it, it's amazing, too, because it, it's a wholly different thing while at mm-hmm. the same time being a wholly same thing. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It, it, it's one of those things where I watched it and I go, this is not made for me at all. Mm-hmm. Bravo. Mm-hmm. You know what I yeah. mean? Like you, you nailed this. You, right. you, they, they hit something nostalgic that's only nostalgic for 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 us. Mm-hmm. Whereas for a kid, this is like wholeheartedly new. Um, Into the Spider Verse did the mm-hmm. same thing. Yes, where I watched that and I just went, "Oh my god!" Yeah. I was like, "There could have never been another superhero movie before or after this thing," and. It tells it's everything a movie in that genre should ever be, start to finish, and it's also one of the most beautiful pieces of animation I've ever seen put to film. Man, is that the truth? No, you totally <laughs> right. Uh, Matt, uh, Spider Verse is incredible. I almost don't want them to do a sequel. They are. It, it, they yeah. just announced it today. But you know uh, what? Good, good for them. I give uh, credit when a superhero movie that didn't make a billion dollars gets a sequel greenlit. Mm. You know, <laughs> that makes me happy, especially when I watched like. They brought in animators because it's it's the guys that did the Lego movie and Claudia with a chance of meatballs and and they produced it. And they they brought in like like, hey, intern number two, who's straight out of college, you're going to animate this sequence for this movie. Oh, so I'm going to do a part of it. No, you're going to do this 30 second sequence. Have fun. And (laughs) and they let her do it like. In her own way, that that's what I loved about that movie is it, it was almost like an anthology, like of collaborating ideas that all mixed into one big whole. And it was the shot. This particular girl was sharing this stuff on Twitter. It was mm. the shot of Spider Gwen playing the drums. Mm. It's a really quick thing, but she Not talked. Ab- she talked about and started showing footage of how to figure out how to make drumstick blur work mm. in in animation, but not in they said the way that the rest of the movie was animated, the keyframe that they dropped would have made it impossible for her to do it. So she went and videotaped herself and then dropped those keyframes and learned how to animate how it would really look. And I'm like, and, and she goes, and you know what? You know, I worked on the movie for like six months and this is the only thing I did was this 30 second bit and they used it in the movie. <laughs> you know, and I think that's so freaking cool. That is. No, that, that's, that's genuinely inspiring. Um, and yeah, I like... I, I like that in the, the studio system that we have out there, there's still people that work that way. Mm-hmm. Like for every, you know, person that wants to jump into the Martin Scorsese and everybody crapping on, you know, Marvel movies, whatever, they, they've, they've worked their asses off. They can say whatever they want. But I love that this thing that people try to look at cynically, five, ten years ago, there weren't all of these movies and there weren't all these places for someone that, you know, like, like you said, you got inspired by anime and then jumped into all this other stuff. Some kid that watched, you know, the awesome Marvel cartoon shows in the early nineties, all of a sudden now could be the lead animator on, you know, 
uh, end game, you know, mm-hmm. and get and get to. And it's like that that kid isn't you know part of the freaking Disney conglomerate. That kid just wants to animate superheroes. Let him, <laughs> you um, know. And I think that's awesome. I mean, there's this horrible mentality that because something is derived from a business or derived from a corporation, it can't still be art that I think needs to be challenged. I am not a pro-business person by any stretch of the imagination. Oh, same here. Yeah, and I don't want to extol the virtues of a corporation, but I, I, I do sum it up, I, I try to sum it up as succinctly as I can by saying that a corporate mentality gave us Star Wars A New Hope and um, the, uh, the Force Awakens, whereas the solitary vision of a single creator gave us the prequel trilogy. Right. And, you know, if, if people want to stand in front of me to that point for a second and go, I like the prequel trilogy better because it was a solitary vision. Good on you. Yeah. Good on you. You know what I mean? There, there was a lot of very hard work and thought being put in there. But mm-hmm. sometimes I'd rather watch something that's reined in a little bit. Yeah. It, it can go bad either way. I mean, look at um, look at the, the Lord of the Rings versus the Hobbit films, right? Mm-hmm. Same same brilliant group of people, you know, making both of them. One yeah. goes wholeheartedly wrong because of rushing and mm-hmm. studio intervention. And it, it's okay. I, I, I get I get that there's bad sides to everything, but um I was okay until the sandworm showed up. And then yeah. like No, I think I'm done. Yeah. Um but yeah. Uh, to, to, uh, <laughs> to to circle back a little bit. So of I've, course. I've been I've been published by a traditional publisher and by uh, self publishing. And um they neither one's really better, but they do produce two very different works. And I feel the same way about movie studios. Um, I, I love big blockbusters. I love the Marvel movies. And I, as much as I hated Batman versus Superman, I actually kind of have to say I kind of dug Justice League and I kind of dug Suicide Squad. Nice. And I, love, I, haven't, I haven't seen either of them yet. So they're, Be glad you didn't pay money to see them. But if you get the chance to watch them on Netflix, I, they're not... I. Justice League especially is fun. It's not good, but it's fun. Um, but there's also a place for the small independent budgets. There's also a place for the people who are making, you know, movies with their cell phones. And and in a lot of ways, it's so hard to be, be an artist today to make money. It's so hard to, you know, make a living with the studio systems and the record systems, but also it's never been easier to be an artist because your ability to create and share with the world has never been easier. Sharing meaningfully is hard. Yes. Getting just for the pure artistic output of I'm going to create something and put it out there. It's never been a better time getting people to notice it. That's the hard part. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why, you know, I, I love the idea of directors that come from the smaller world mm-hmm. learning that, you know, you need, you need a marry ship with the studio system, but still using it to their advantage. Like for instance, um, the movie, um, uh, uh, Bumblebee mm. exists wholeheartedly because the guy that directed it is the head of Leica mm. and he wanted Leica to stay in business. And unfortunately, no matter what, Leica movies make money, mm-hmm. but they don't make, 
you know, good enough money for someone to, they don't make Pixar money, even right. though they're making equivalently, if not more well-made films, depending on how you look at it. But, but it's funny that, you know, Leica is still making movies because, you know, he went ahead and made that actually good Transformers movie, which is paid. really strange. What is, it, it's, it's weird. We live in this, in, in America especially, we have this very capitalist mentality when it comes to art. And yet, anytime an artist deviates and, you know, gets a paycheck, they get accused of selling out. It's like part of the reason you are an artist is you want to be popular. You want your art to be consumed and appreciated. And one of the ways that gets measured, unfortunately, for better or for worse, is dollar signs. And, you know, I like having a fridge full of food. I like having electricity. Well, right. And I like as, as long as these people stick around and show you that, the, you know, I can still make a quality thing within that system. And don't worry, you'll still get. I mean, look at freaking. Um, uh, oh, man. Last Jedi guy. I love him to death. Ryan Johnson. Oh. You know what I mean? He makes that movie movie, you know, arguably oh, it made $400 million less than The Force Awakens, so all of a sudden it's Only. a bad film. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, whatever. But he goes, what does he do? He he makes a low-budget, low multi-actor whodunit <laughs> movie, uh -huh. just for the fuck of it. Hey. You, you know, also, his cinematographer for The Last Jedi is the same guy he's been working with since they were 12 years old. That's amazing. You know what I mean? I, I find yeah. this stuff fascinating. Um, uh, the director of Aquaman, James Wan, is the guy who created Saw. All he makes is low-budget horror movies and a Fast and the Furious film in Aquaman. You know why? Because it's the studio went, you make us money. Here, have guaranteed money. Mm -hmm. Like, just make us these movies. Well, then, then you go in the opposite direction with the Wachowski siblings. Where yes. One of the most important and landmark films of the last 30 years. And... They haven't had a hit since, and they don't seem to really care. No, They're and I love, I love that someone out there wants to let them keep experimenting, and that makes me so happy because I haven't really liked most of the things they've done uh -huh. fully, but I appreciate all of them. I own all of them. Do you right. know what I mean? Because I watch it, and I go, wow, yeah. like this is bizarre. And someone gave you a lot of money to make this. I will, like, I will like, defend uh, Speed Racer. Speed, Speed Racer, Racer is incredible. I, it has a very small niche of people that actually get it. But yeah. Speed Racer is is amazing. Oh, when I they, went to go see it with my wife, she didn't understand a third of the things I kept cheering about. Well, like, they, that's the original voice actor. That's the... They made a quintessential film... Oh. Of what you would make if you made a film of Speed Racer. Oh, like, like everything. Everything about that movie is just Speed Racer. They, they should have followed that up and just made like a Wacky Races movie just for the that, fuck of it. That could have been fun. That, it would have been I hilarious. Joking, but I don't know. That, that could no, have been... I'd watch the hell out of it. Yeah, I'd watch that too. But, I'm just, it's, but Speed Racer is one of those movies I use to judge people by. Um, uh, a Knight's Tale is another one. Oh, a Knight's Tale. Yeah, so like, if I meet a person, they're like, yeah, I don't like a Knight's Tale. I'm like, I don't think we're going to be friends. A Knight's Tale is so... Weird? Weird, and in, if you, you can't, like... The thing I used to tell people about that, because I even, I saw the trailer, and I'm like, what the fuck is this yeah. thing? And you then I watched it... From 10 Things I Hate About You? And then I watched it, and I'm like, hit, hit. Yeah. I, that was fun. Yeah. <laughs> It's a roller derby movie set 
500 years too early. It's so freaking funny. Oh, God. I love Jeffrey Chaucer in that. Oh, the, yeah, dude. That Every, everybody in that was just, yeah. they showed up somehow for a very, very weird movie and just mm-hmm. nailed it. Yeah. I, except the uh, Jocelyn, the princess. I just, mm, she just didn't do anything for me. I, I, I feel bad for that. She seems like she's a decent actress, but. She wasn't in on the jokes. You're going to play queen music over the scene? Yeah! Yeah. <laughs> and then the David Bowie starts. What? Don't yeah. worry, it'll make complete sense. Yeah. We, 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 I, I, I like a lot of movies that are coming out right now. They're one of the only things that keep the world sane. But exactly. I do miss, I, I do feel like we could use a little bit more, I don't know, shake and bake films where it's, we're going to take this idea and sprinkle it with this and, you know, just. Yeah, it would be, it would be interesting if people took more chances. I feel like the, the, the cool thing that like Netflix and Shutter and Hulu and places have have done is they've scooped up the direct to video scene, mm-hmm. which kind of had that going for it, yes. and injected a ton of money into it. So validated the, artistically, yeah. And so like I watched um, Shutter. I, I love horror flicks, mm-hmm. and and Shutter's got a whole bunch of original things they do. Yeah, I've heard. And and they did this little series of found footage movies that again they're not great mm-hmm. but they're fascinating you know someone went hey i have an idea and i happen to know this group of people that put on a really cool haunted house in in pennsylvania mm-hmm. and the haunted house has a cool like history behind the building so we're going to write a fake version of that history behind the building and film a movie in a real haunted house that's a haunted haunted house Nice. And so it's a really unique take on on a found footage movie because the idea is it's like you're watching like a 2020 puff piece investigating it. So it's all cobbled together from like people's like Facebook live videos and stuff of going Mm -hmm. there. And I'm like, this is actually really cool. And then they made two more of them and utilized like Chuck Spaghetti at the wall and see if it sticks like lore that may not have been lore they were planning, but just stuff in the background of shots of the movies and just said, we're going to build a whole character based on that and like Mm -hmm. add that into the story. And the third one, we're going to do Faust for some reason. And you're like, uh, sure guys. (laughs) And, and and they were fascinating. And I'm like, you know, someone's actually trying. It, It reminded me of working on films with my brother when we were younger. Mm-hmm. Where, you know, you're just cobbling shit together and hoping that it works. Right. You're like, um, why does this character have a rifle? Well, because Dave had a toy rifle and it looked cool. Like, exactly. Okay. We yeah. are, we made a zombie movie, which I don't know if you've stumbled upon it on my YouTube, but if you haven't, you have to find it. I'll do um, it's called Ithaca Morn's A Zombie Odyssey. My buddy Tim wrote wrote a zombie movie based on the Odyssey, and it's only 15 minutes long. And the idea is a guy went out like to get like to look for survivors and left his wife Penelope back at her house and he gets bit and is slowly changing into a zombie but keeps having flashbacks of his human life that lead him back to his house and he saves her from a bunch of hunters that ransack the place. Damn, and that's brilliant. My brother's in it. He's got an axe and an eye patch because he's the um the Cyclops. Nice. And um, yeah, we just had a lot of fun. But my buddy Jeremy just mm-hmm. happened to be really into replica airsoft guns. Mm-hmm. And he was like, oh, you guys need weapons? 
And we're like, uh, what? <laughs> He's like, you guys need weapons. I got some. And he showed up and we thought they were real. Like, why do you have like M16s and like stuff like this? And he's like, don't worry, they're all fake. But we're like running around, you know, he spray painted the tips black and everything. So we're running around like in public with these things in, you know, like 2004. Mm. So we we should have been shot on site, but we weren't. And we made this really cool little zombie movie. And I so what reminded me of that is that I ended up, you know, I'm in college, you know, Mm. and my friends are. um really well-meaning but you know aren't the best at organizing things tim is an incredibly good writer but like you know we had shot half the movie with a cast of people that just stopped showing up so i like hired my friends and we were doing it like every wednesday over like a summer and i ended up being like the the co-director cinematographer editor sound guy music guy you know all this stuff casting um and it was so much fun. And um, I watched a movie recently. Have you heard of this? It's called One Cut of the Dead. Mm-hmm. Have you heard of it? I have. Do you I know any? It. I've heard of it. Do you, do you know anything about it? Not a thing. All right, go into it cold. Mm-hmm. But I will just say that the movie, the movie is not what you think it is. It is so much more, and then it's okay. so much different than that. I will try to check it out. <laughs> yeah, I got to see this uh, Odyssey. Oh yeah, you'll you'll love it. Show. You'll love it. Um, but one cut of the dead is like a celebration of filmmaking is what the movie ends up nice. being. And it made me so happy. See, I never, I never got into filmmaking like as a, as, as, as a pastime, but I, through the conventions that I would do mainly Magfest. Magfest um, is awesome. Magfest is amazing. I, I, it's a religious experience, a family reunion for me, but I met a film studio called X stripe studios. Um, and they did, uh, the first, full-length video game kind of ground-level films that I ever saw. They did River City Rumble um, and uh, Project Snake, and um, they they did these very, very low-budget films, and they're they're surprisingly well-made. They're, you know, they're shot on, you know, VHS camcorder kind of things, and the production value is non-existent, but there's a passion and a real recognition of what this is what the audience really want from a gaming movie. And, um, I, I always admired that ability at filmmaking is, is an incredible thing. Even if you've never made a film, you have no idea how many things can go wrong. Oh yeah. yeah. It, it's, it's truly, it, it's truly incredible. And how many things are, you know, the, like you can have you you know like people talk about filmmakers being good or being bad Mm -hmm. based on one sole thing alone their Mm -hmm. experience with the product right that's it but i've but i've told people this time and time again there are the best movies that you just love hands down and the people that make them are known for being insufferable pricks to work with yeah but then there's people who make garbage that make a lot of money like mm-hmm. Michael Bay. Yep. And if you read about Michael Bay outside of like, you know, his run-ins with a couple of the cast members in the Transformers films, cause he right. just didn't want to be there. He is known from a business standpoint as being one of the best directors working. The crew always likes him. Mm-hmm. The shots and scenes are always in on time. Yeah. People aren't working overtime. There's no crunch going on. Right. I guess the guy like runs a really good set and it's just like, you know, 
it's a shame the end product isn't better <laughs> because because people have a blast working with him. That's why he always gets to work, you know. Well, and okay, it's just interesting. It's just interesting to me, you know, that like people forget that. And I get into this argument with my buddy at lunch a lot who has finally let – he's, you know, super geek and, like, you know, the Avengers, him and I went and saw it together in the theater. And something happened and he just – he totally turned into, like, this old curmudgeon you know, oh, superhero fatigue and Disney mm-hmm. ruined Star Wars, you know, and all this. And I'm like, dude, I'm like, you know, think about all the people working on it. Like, can't you, like – watch an interview with an actor he goes oh all that's just created and catered by them so you feel a certain way and i go even if it is i believe that that person like when you see um oh what's his name finn Mm -hmm. um actor i can't i love the guy john boyega Mm -hmm. react to seeing himself in a star wars trailer for the first time that's not disney making that shit up right Right. that guy is a little kid that always wanted to be in a movie with a freaking lightsaber that gets to hold a lightsaber and just saw himself on screen with it you Mm -hmm. know and if you can't find joy in that then you're dead inside man like (laughs) no i'm I'm with you and i i concur the um yeah it's frustrating to see that kind of I don't know, malignancy that some people can develop about this stuff. Um, well, and, about the... and to develop about stuff like, especially about comic books. I mean, if there is nothing in the world that is more of a corporate entity, it's something that's being published weekly or monthly for you to consume. Like, exactly. it, it didn't just all of a sudden become something that there were too many versions of. There were always too many versions of it. That's oh, kind of the joke. Yeah. I mean, and you're you're spot on there. The, um, the, you know, comic books for as long as they've been around, they've basically been a magazine to sell advertising space. Yeah. And the stories were just there to keep kids buying the, you know, periodical. And at some point though, somebody kind of realized, Hey, we can tell good engaging stories while, you know, keeping the lights on. Absolutely. And that's, that's the whole point of it, right? We created this fake, this fake money. Mm-hmm. And we need to make the fake money to be able to not die. Mm-hmm. And so we might as well enjoy ourselves while we're doing it. Let me circle back here for a second. You yeah, please. You the... you are welcome to go on whatever tangents you want, dude. It's how I work. I need to humiliate myself thoroughly here. Um, so you uh, you mentioned your friend brought all these airsoft guns and they looked real. So I go over to my friend's house uh, some years ago and I'm in her living room and she has all of these guns around. Now, this is a nerd commune. There's like six people that are living in this house. You know, they've all got a bedroom and, you know, there's like six computers and stacks of tabletop role-playing games and comics all over the place. It's, it's a nerd heaven. It was a really great place. And so there are these guns. Naturally, I assume, these must be airsoft guns. Uh-oh. What kind of insane moron would just have real pistols and rifles lying around. Sounds to me like you were in New Hampshire. No, no, just wait. So she and I are talking about some weighty subject, and I need something to do with my hands. And I pick up one of these guns and think, you know, this is an airsoft gun, right? And I say, can I play with this? Thank God the damn thing was not loaded. She takes it from me and proceeds to field strip it. I was like, oh, that was a real gun. One of the nine others you have just sitting here in your living room. Okay. Oh, boy. Yeah. 
So apparently, if I'm put near a real gun, I will ask to play with it. Yeah, it's you. There's something about. I mean, I'm I'm surprised. I've I've been to. So where in North Carolina? Where are you inland? No, we're. I'm right in the middle of the state. Right in the middle of the state. Yep. Because I've I've been to let's see I've been to Beaufort, which is right on the water. Mm -hmm. I've been to. What's um the Charlotte? Mm-hmm. Is that the big? Yeah, has it been there? Yeah, and I I loved North Carolina, yeah. and it it bothered me because the people that I went down there to visit um ended up becoming less l- less good in in more recent times just because yeah. of the directions you go. Yeah. Um. When you know, yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, but I you know I I they're good people. I loved where they lived, and I loved it down there. And it's it's cool that you say like nerd commune in North Carolina because mm-hmm. it. It, it gives it gives me hope that 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 we're everywhere. <laughs> we definitely are, and I can I, I can validate that further. But let me focus on North Carolina here for a second, because North Carolina is a beautiful microcosm of the entire country. Um, and I say that not just as a North Carolinian, but also that a lot of political ideas that have shaped modern politics were dry run in North Carolina. Uh A lot of the uh, mentalities of both parties, Republican and Democrat, were first tried out in North Carolina. Things that moved nationwide in one election cycle, you can see an election cycle or two previously, uh, gerrymandering got stuck. It didn't get started here, but the most recent... We perfected it. Yeah. Most recent push to... um, most recent push to use gerrymandering to not only control voting districts, but also to control uh, school boards. Uh-huh. That got started in North Carolina before 2012. Um, Jesus. Yeah. And so there's been a lot of this stuff. And so I have no doubt that I'm biased, um, but biased, excuse me. But um, a lot of times I feel like North Carolina is overlooked as a pulse for the direction the nation is going. And we're, as a state, split pretty well right down the middle. Yeah, no, yeah. I, I noticed exactly that when I was there. We uh, just, unfortunately, we're ruled by counties with nine people in them, and those nine people have more voting power than the entire city of Asheville. Um, well, you know, it's that old it's that old fashioned math. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's <laughs> a good way of putting it. Um, but, uh, yeah, the, have you seen any of the sci-fi coming out of like Africa or Indonesia? Yes. Oh man. Good stuff. And going back to earlier, talking about the, you know, She-Ra cartoon and other things, it's not for us. And that's glorious. That's wonderful. It's delightful to see art that you can appreciate, you can enjoy, but you know, there's a demographic that you do not belong to that this is for. And it's starting to inject itself into, um, even into like the Marvel movies and, mm-hmm. and, and the Star Wars movies for that, you know, when I see someone get aggressively angry for not for like, th- there's the people that are angry at the new Star Wars films that are completely off base that mm-hmm. are just, that are just angry because they're jerks and they need mm-hmm. someone to be angry too. But like, I watched, you know, like a dad with a son mm-hmm. honestly say, you know, this isn't the Star Wars that I want to share with my son. There's nothing for him there. And that bothers me because it's like, so your son can't like a girl? 
Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? But at the same time, doubling back on that, it's like that's almost healthy that he can kind of recognize that mm-hmm. it's not really being made for for his nostalgia. It's right. being made for somebody different. He's saying the wrong thing, mm-hmm. right? He should be able to want to share that with his son and also enjoy it. You know, mm-hmm. it's that whole like, oh my, my my son can't watch a girl show. It's like she was not a girl show. She was a an everybody show, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Uh, but but whatever. But um, you know, I see that with that. But particularly Spider Man Homecoming. Less than Spider Man Far From Home, but in Spider Man Homecoming, I remember my brother had issues with the movie because Mm -hmm. he's he's never going to like a spider-man movie that isn't a sam raimi spider-man movie and i give him credit for that because those were great but to see a spider-man movie that was so wholeheartedly putting peter parker in high school right now Mm -hmm. and not peter parker in high school that was basically supposed to be the 50s but being written in the 80s Mm -hmm. right was really interesting and i i can see where he's coming from he said i could be wrong it could just not be for me Mm-hmm. Like the issues that this kid is dealing with are not my Peter Parker issues. They're new. And I'm like, you know, that's that's a really cool way of putting it. Mm-hmm. And I give a movie credit for um, going all in on that. Yeah, oh, totally. You know? The a like, problem have to find a problem defined is half solved. Right. Right. Exactly. And, and you know, and, and you could say the same thing for Black Panther, even though it has universal um love just because it's so goddamn well done mm-hmm. but that movie isn't made for you know 12 year old white kid that's grown up with privilege right mm-hmm. you know but at the same time it can speak to that kid right. you know um and, and i think that's wonderful that we're getting we're getting all this exposure and people get angry at it for a reason people get angry at it because it's changing the way that they've been living their life and the traditions they hold on to and i like that I like that stuff being challenged. And there's more to it than that also. And part of it, and this is a this is a hard thing to confront, part of it is some of these people don't want their world to change because they have power and they enjoy being the center of the universe. And right, it's, no the only, longer... it's the only way they feel they have control. But, there, but there's an additional demographic that often isn't spoken to that needs to be at least acknowledged, maybe not addressed differently, but needs to be acknowledged, and that is the people when confronted with this realize they're wrong and it hurts them. And uh, it's these people that uh, I'm, I struggle oftentimes to, to figure out how to address because it's like, you're a terrible person. I don't want to be compassionate to a terrible person, but there are people, and and you can go back and look at um, uh, diaries and letters written uh, before the civil war Mm -hmm. with slave owners whom wrote about this, who were like, I saw such and such, and they emoted. And for a moment, I was confronted with the reality that this is a person. And it, it, it causes pain, and that's where some of this can come from. That's where some of this pushback can come from. And the beauty of a multicultural world, a multicolored world, is so wonderful, but it can blind people. And sometimes what you need is you need even more voices to reach out to them to say there's still room for you or to say just because you were wrong or blind in the past doesn't mean you have to still be wrong or blind now. Right, right. We, you, you can accept what you did or said that was wrong. Mm-hmm. And if you, if you, you know, I don't even know what the right word for yeah. it is. Um, 
I, 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 I struggle to say repent because of my wonderful Catholic upbringing, <laughs> but that's not the, but that's not the word that I want to use. Um, but it's kind of like that. It's like, you know, if, if you're honestly changed, there should be empathy right. available for you if it's honest. Mm-hmm. And that's the hardest part is figuring out when it's honest. Cause you said too many people out of embarrassment, mm-hmm. out of plain embarrassment for being so awful. And coming to terms with it, it just double down. They right. double down out of fear. You know, well, I've I've already come this far. Can't fix it now. <laughs> and, and say it's not even that they're afraid of other people. It's not even that they're afraid of what will my friends think, my family think. It's what will I think. It's yeah. The the resistance to saying maybe I've been wrong. Can't face yourself, man. And and this goes back to the kids' cartoons. This is why children's entertainment and children's education become so important. Is we have to introduce kids at an early age to be able to confront those ugly truths of everything you know might be wrong and you need to be prepared to confront that. And it also doesn't have to be the end. Correct. It's not like it's not like you're wrong and then all of a sudden you're you're done. Right. There are there are situations where that's unfortunately the law, right. but but there's situations where it's like you could have had the wrong point of view in an argument. And not just be thrown out of class because you have that wrong point of view. So I need to detour radically here for a second. Forgive me. But I need to get on a soapbox. So, Transformers. I love soapboxes. Okay. Get ready. Transformers. I love Transformers. I've watched every single episode of Transformers from the first episode of Gen 1 through the most recent episodes of Cyberverse to collate and catalog them and to find the 10 best episodes. It's the most popular panel I've ever done at a convention. Top Holy 10 episodes shit. Of now... This is the thing. That included the Japanese series. Now, are you a Transformers fan? Yes. Have you ever seen the Japanese series? Um, one or two episodes, but not full through. Do yourself a favor. Whatever you do, don't watch anymore. They're awful. Um, and uh, part of the reason is exactly that, what we were just talking about, recognizing that you could be wrong and changing. One of the big things that really bothered me about the Japanese series, this is Headmasters, Super God Master Force, and Victory, um, is the only characters who evolve and change are the villains. And evolution, it really bothered me a lot. Evolution and change is depicted as a villainous trait in those shows. Oh. Yeah. That's ugly. It really irked me a lot. (laughs) Um, and so I could not help but think if you're a seven-year-old or eight-year-old watching this and you realize some opinion, some thoughts, some mentality you had was wrong, that means you're the bad guy. I thought, oh, oh a bad lesson to be introduced into kids. Um, this Holy isn't quite crap. as bad as, this isn't quite as bad as the Unicron trilogy when they were victim shaming and, um, abuse uh, emboldening, but I remember uh, that. Yeah, kicker, kicker got a bad rap and uh, inner John, but yeah, sorry. Okay, I'm off the soapbox now. No, no, dude, that's that's uh, thank you for God, that uh, Jesus, yeah, no, the the Unicron trilogy. I am less of a Transformers fan having watched the Japanese series and having watched the Unicron trilogy. Oh they boy, that bad. So, 
d- doubling way back again yeah. to to one of the thousands already. B- basically, we've already established the fact that you need to be a frequent guest on here because I love talking to you. Number one, um, so so thank you. No, thank thank you for coming on because you're you're opening up all kinds of cool stuff. But um, you know, since a- anime animation in the united states particularly in the 80s was being farmed out you know to cheaper countries um i i had always thought you know like you see things like gem and the holograms transformers ghostbusters um were all being animated in japan korea and elsewhere do you feel like those studios or the directors that were working on it on the american side got wholly influenced by the animation coming back or was it more that they were just journeymen and it didn't really like, I, I I tried to like kind of piece back in my head, and you probably have more data or more you know research to show it. But you know, was it more like a Saban thing where they were just taking and importing the work and putting it out there, and there wasn't really like any artists on their end that were getting influenced by it? It varied by show to show. Yeah, and sometimes even episode to episode. Um, so using say GI Joe for example. Um, G.I. Joe was a wholly original project uh, created here in the U.S. It was originally going to be a Marvel comic focusing on uh, Nick Fury's son. And then that got reimagined and turned into G.I. Joe, Real American Hero. That was created and executed almost entirely in America. And then they shipped the animation to various studios, some in America, I believe, others in Japan, Korea, um, and so on. Uh, Transformers was very, very similar, but there was a back and forth between the mecha designers in Japan and in the U.S., and because you had a Japanese toy line that was imported over here, and then Sunbow Productions and uh, Hasbro hired a bunch of Marvel writers to create the story, there was more of a dialogue. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if that answered your question or not. However. No, it does. Cause, cause it's like you talked about earlier, you know, I'm thinking that animation style would bring the anime influence, but it's really, like you said, the story mm-hmm. and the, um, the intention and how people were being spoken to and dealt with by, by the show. That so, way. no, so yeah, I, I figured as much that it wouldn't be, but so invert inversely, you mm-hmm. had mentioned, you know, that. You know, after a while, you know, they kind of start cross um, pollinating, cross pollinating. But what were some of the if if you know of the first um, anime shows that were kind of taking on a more Western a- animation influence? This is a little bit out of my wheelhouse, but I will try to answer the best of my ability. When you say animation influence, I assume you're talking about narrative. If you're yes, yes, about... I'm talking about narrative. Yeah, okay. what we would. Yeah, the, the approach that we would have taken to how we depict our story and our characters? Um, I would argue Fooly Cooly. Okay. Would definitely be one. Trigun. Trigun, definitely. Um, That's the first one that pops into my mind. Big O as well. Um, A lot of the stuff that I think came into... So in the late 80s, early 90s, you had the Japanime movement. And... The, the OAVs, the original animated videos that came over here, Bubblegum Crisis, Bubblegum Crash, Don.io, that kind of stuff, Gunbuster. Um, and the Japanese studios over there realized there was a huge market for this stuff in the U.S. 
and they started throwing everything at the U.S., just bring anything they could bring over, and they just brought over all of this stuff. Um, and then they started realizing there's a bigger demographic in the U.S. that's going to buy this, and we'll buy it in Japan. Despite what a lot of people think, anime is not that popular in Japan. Um, I mean, it is popular, It's but it, it's kind of like, you know, the Marvel movies. It's kind of like... Um, you know, superhero comics and kind of things are here. They're popular. They're big money, but it's not the end all of entertainment. There well, are, and, it, and it's not unique. That's you know, because it's mm-hmm. it's just happens to be this is the art form in which we make this stuff. Mm-hmm. Whereas over here, things are trying to look like that and emulate right. that, and, and there's a difference. It's um, you know, kind of in the same way. You know, you get. I, you know, I was thinking of influences and how, um, even though, you know, they're, they're coming at things from a different standpoint, like the studio Ghibli Mm -hmm. folks have a huge influence coming from early Disney films. Mm -hmm. Right. But that's wholly in visuals because they're, they're pulling from the same type of stuff. Narratively, they couldn't be any different. You know what I mean? You disagree? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I, I feel, I feel that they pull more from like a darker, um, you know, more adult lore than the Disney films have a tendency to try to pull from. Depends on like, the Disney film you're talking about. Like, I, 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 I guess I could agree with that. I, and I'm, I'm going, and I'm going off the cuff here, so that's why. Go mm-hmm. ahead. No, fine. But I would argue that the earlier Disney movies, like Snow White, Cinderella, um, uh, Sleeping Beauty, stuff like that, the the stuff before Walt Disney passed. There was a darkness to that I think we kind of gloss over both out of adulthood and out of familiarity. True. I think a lot of the Studio Ghibli stuff still retains the heroic princess mentality, um, not nearly a damsel in distress kind of thing, but unless you start talking about uh, Castle Cagliostro or... um, Nausicaa, stuff like that, that's a little bit different. But if you're talking about uh, Puyo and Spirited Away, no, I think those are step in step with any Disney movie. Well, I'd say step in step, you know, to kind of rephrase my thought thematically, for sure, step in Mm -hmm. step. But I think, I feel that, like, you get a movie like like the Pixar folks put out or like that, um, like Laika puts out that. Mm -hmm kind of have this more like like you talked about the, the anime looks at you know okay this is whole kind of predominantly geared to children or younger folk but we're not we're not treating them like they're not adult enough or grown up enough to handle this right. and i feel you you're right the earlier disney films definitely had that air but i feel like there was a portion of time and still in the kind of main output of the disney cartoons that are kind of the Americanized, we have to really over-explain the themes on screen. We can't just let the movie speak for itself. Mm-hmm. Whereas the Ghibli films have always been more about the visual narrative mm-hmm. than, than the character having to walk out and go, I'm sad because <laughs> things happened. Do you, do you know yeah. what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's I guess where, where it was in my head was that the, you know, the, Ghibli, the Ghibli films and the Disney films can pull from the same well but you take like a Princess Mononoke and a, or a Spirited Away and go, they're really hoping that the audience can figure this out. Right. You know, 
whereas the rarely did the successful Disney films ever kind of use like, you know, mm-hmm. nightmare narrative, you know, or dream narrative to, to tell yeah. to tell their stories. Whereas Pixar does that all the time. Mm-hmm. I see what you're saying. And I'm with you. I, I, I would concur. And I would say that's even been that's been reinforced for Disney because I think you started to see stuff like that with Brave. Oh, yeah. yeah. Brave didn't perform as well. Yeah, Brave was totally a, a Ghibli film. Like that's what I loved about it. As soon as we, as soon as they got into the old witch, that was kind of like mm-hmm. making it all happening. And I'm like, this jumped right out of a freaking Miyazaki movie. This is wonderful. That'd Give me fun. more of this. Yeah. So interesting story, and I, I, I have yet to get any verification on this. It is a urban legend. This may not be true, but I really hope it is true. So rumor has it that Disney went to Studio Ghibli and said, "We want your catalog." Studio Ghibli said, sure, we'll sell you our catalog, but you have to buy the entire catalog. Have you heard the story? No. Rumor has it, allegedly, that the catalog included a hentai studio's output. (laughs) So, and and like, apparently pretty serious tentacles and stuff worse than Bible Black kind of hentai that apparently Disney had to buy and is now sitting in the Disney vault. I seeping into the other films. Oh God. Um, I have yet to find any firm, true, absolute confirmation of that, but it is a persistent legend. So now the live action little mermaid is going to be like full on like Lovecraft tentacle porn is what you're saying. I'm not saying I wouldn't watch it. Oh, I'd watch it. Mm -hmm. I, uh, I'd be horrified, Mm -hmm. but I'd watch it. That is so. That is one area that I would like to see. And wow, this is a tangent. That was an awful segue. We, uh, we talked <laughs> what I about, really want to see. <laughs> yeah, we we talked about wanting studios to bring some validity and artistic exploration. One thing I'd really like to see make a comeback is pornography. Um, modern day porn is horrible. Well, it's homemade, and it's not even homemade. It's it's not even a, it's not even a film. It's a it's an action sequence of that. And um, a while back, I got into a kick studying up on Linda Lovelace and um, some of the characters, some of the people from that era, especially before Amanda Siegfried did the uh, biopic. And um, oh, I forgot they did that. Yeah, yeah. Everybody else did too. Um, <laughs> but uh, th- th- there's something. Pornography is a really under-respected art form, and I would really love it if a studio could find some way to marry that genre with more engaging and more ambitious storytelling. They keep leaning on titillation and taboo. Well, even the the genre of the erotic thriller went to the fucking birds oh yeah absolutely like you you know what i mean like Mm -hmm. where like you could have a movie like body heat that was an incredibly well-made movie that also happened to have very intense scenes of sex in it i mean Mm -hmm. um what what's his name uh director what was it william hurt in body heat yeah 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 but i'm thinking um director who made oh the guy's out of his mind the house that jack built um why can't I remember his name right now? He Peterson? he made what? Was it Peterson? No, he made the um the Nymphomaniac movies. Oh, oh. What's Christ. his name? Um 
Requiem for a Dream. No, uh, not the same director. Oh, uh, no. um, but um, I, I can't remember his name. My friend, my buddy Fred, listening to this is going to be pissed at me because it's his favorite director. But anyway, he's an awesome director, and his shtick is he never wanted to let that genre go. Mm. And he so much so that I think all the actors who were in um, *Nymphomaniac* that did actual pornographic scenes had mm. to leave the Actors Guild because of it. That's a shame. And it's it's kind of silly that you know, it's such a stigma that the rest of the world doesn't seem to have. But since we are the highest controller of the output of film as an art form. I guess, as far as Lars it being von taken Trapp. seriously, Lars von Trier. There you go. We we scoff at that. It's like you can have you can have as much horrific violence and you know whatever, mm-hmm. and and you'll win an Academy Award. You you get you know one explicit sex scene and it's NC seventeen and bye. Yeah, and never talk to you again. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's a cultural thing. You know, sex work is not respected at all. Um, I, I had a conversation with a cosplayer of mine who does erotic cosplay. And she has two um, pseudonyms, one for her erotic cosplay and one for her non-erotic cosplay. Yeah. She summarized it and she said, as soon as somebody sees my tips, they don't respect me as a model anymore. Ding. And that sucks. Hey, you know, I had a a guy on the Talkbuster show. Mm -hmm. Um, You probably haven't got to that one yet, but he, he, it was a guy that I had been on his show before and he was like, oh, would you want to have, because I don't want to like, you know, do something that, you know, you thought would hurt the show because Blockbuster wasn't, you know, they were a Christian owned company, so they didn't do porn. He mm-hmm. said, but I worked for a porn store. Would that be interesting for the show? I'm like, yes. Mm-hmm. And he said it was really cool because you'd go to the video store um, convention mm-hmm. and because Blockbuster and Hollywood video and Hollywood video, I think had porn, but because Blockbuster was has such, such an ownership of it, mm-hmm. they literally had to put a black curtain up the middle of the convention floor and they made all the freaking porn studios go on the other side. Mm-hmm. And it's like, they're all adults in this room, man. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> what are you going to, you know, all of a sudden turn into a sex crazed maniac because you see a pair of boobs. Like, I don't know what. The... <laughs> no, I, I totally understand. And it, it's a shame too, because you know, it, pornography is an amazing art form. It's a visual medium that elicits a physical response. And for some reason, it's the one that we've said, Oh, that's, that's the no, no. Yeah. And, and that's, that's a shame. Um, and yeah. And anyway, but yeah. So oh, that was an interesting segue. Fire in the sky is the best episode of Transformers. No, kidding. <laughs> and we got to that by talking about Little Mermaid and tentacle porn. So oh, this is God. this is this is this is already just gonna get me so many strange comments. <laughs> I can't wait. Excellent. Yeah. Oh man. Concerns me when it's when I mentioned Bible Black in a podcast. I'm like, this is this could not go well. No, dude, this is going great. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I'm a uh, you you haven't been in a you haven't been in a long um, uh, alcohol in, in conversation with my brother. Oh my god, uh, things go in weird directions. I, um, I can imagine. But uh, yeah, so um, wow, <laughs> this is awesome. Hey, cool. by the way, also thank you for being on the East Coast and being willing to work with my schedule because oh, no I predominantly get Midwesterners and mm-hmm. people in California because of not being able to work till 11. Uh, I understand, buddy. 
Um, so let's see. Maybe, maybe we'll hit one more fun topic, and then I'll play my game. So, okay. uh, so what were we doing? I was trying to inch us into anime's influence from the U.S., and we we talked about that, and then we talked about porn, mm-hmm. non-existent porn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, imagine so, so. Someone from Pornhub listens to this, and then they all of a sudden become like the next Miramax tomorrow, and it was all because of us. Hey man, I'll take uh, I'll take artistic credit for that. I'd rather a paycheck, but yeah. No. Oh yeah. man. So what else is there? Jesus, I, I, why did we just hit a wall with porn? Uh, probably because it's uh, one AM now. Yeah. Um, we can just play the game. So, um, you, you want to play a game? Well, no. I, I'm up this hour. Let's get our money's worth. We got one more topic we can discuss. Anything? Um, Throw something out there. So, uh, I really think Jason the Wheeled Warriors needs to be remade. That's a really underrated cartoon. It was a great concept. And wow, man, it was so good. Kind of like uh, Exo Squad. It's one of those shows that a lot of people forgot about. But when you show it to them again, they're like, "Wow, this is amazing! Why wasn't there more?" They're like, "Well, the toys sucked." But that's exactly it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the toys were awful. Great idea. Just the execution was terrible. So that that that's a fun topic mm. for for like a quick little segue. So sure. what what toys can you remember like because you just mentioned exo squad the exo squad toys were incredible they really were and like i'm trying to go back and see if i can remember like toys because you just said you know the toys were crap for that show but the show was awesome Mm -hmm. what was one where like the toy was awesome and the show was crap what mask yeah go back and watch mask now mask is boring and dumb yeah, mask it's is not very totally, good. The, the voice acting is awful. Like even for the '80s, when voice acting could be really hit or miss, mask's voice acting was really subpar. Like it was, it was worse than the GoBots. Like oh, I, the I, GoBots. Yeah, mask, mask lived wholly because of an amazing and terrific toy line. But the the actual the actual show itself and a great opening because. The 80s was born in the wake of MTV, so every TV show had incredible openings. But then the actual show itself was just really weak. Yeah. Do you remember Sky Commanders? Sky Commanders. Is that the NASA show? No. So Sky Commanders, I don't remember how long it ran, Mm -hmm. but I was like the perfect age. I was like four or five years old. And the toy line for this thing was awesome. It was basically it ex- Yeah, the zip lines. Yes. yes. All those were cool. The toys and the toys worked. Like it was one of the few toy lines where like, you look at them do it on the commercial and they're like they didn't lie. Like these yeah. do what they're showing they did. <laughs> like Yeah. Granted they became a tangled mess very quickly, but oh, but they yeah. worked. I think my, I think my cuz I had two or three of them, I think they worked like twice before the cords got tangled and whatnot. Um, and then my brain just had a terrible thought of, I wonder how many kids left alone to play got themselves strangled in that shit. None. None. Good. Good. Because that's that's sad. Yeah, if they had been, they would have been recalled in a heartbeat back in the 80s. Yeah, that's true. They were pretty trigger finger happy about that. And then there were Dino Riders. Greatest toys in the world. We're going to take a dinosaur and we're going to give it combat armor. Ooh. Those toys were incredible. In fact, I, I live in my... I, I own my grandmother's house. Um, mm-hmm. I 
you know, my grandmother and grandfather passed away and I, and I bought it. And so this has been my house and I grew up having every Christmas morning here, like the Mm. whole family, it's a big house Mm. and I can still, you know, look over in the corner out this door next to me and remember when Bob and I got our first two dino riders and they're walking around the corner on their own, you know, with the lights flashing and everything. And I'm like, this is the coolest toy ever made. And why with Jurassic World? Well, hell, when Jurassic Park came out, why the dino riders didn't come back? I don't know. And now with Jurassic World and Godzilla. Yeah, get on that. And man, you got to remember those that was 80s toy technology. Go back and look at 80s toys. I mean, really look at them. Do, try to divorce yourself of your nostalgia and just look at them. They were trash. Yeah, 80s yeah. toys were cheap. They were, you know, poorly made compared to now with modern toy technology. They'd be incredible. I love like having kids and just looking at the stuff they have now and going this and you'd think now they'd make stuff that was cheaper but they don't like this you look at it and you go this is going to take a freaking beating <laughs> you know uh-huh. um because they they make some inc- and they make incredible toys that do really cool stuff mm-hmm. like when i like when i was little you know you'd get like i want like you know castle gray skull mm-hmm. and castle gray skull is a really cool toy but it doesn't really do much nope. You know, it's like two colors and He-Man can stand in it. It's a glorified dollhouse, yeah. right? But you look now and, like, you know, the shows that my kids are into, we got my daughter a, a Vampirina um, Scare B&B thing. So the idea mm-hmm. of this show, it's actually kind of an adorable show. The the idea of it is that, it. have you heard of it? Yeah. Okay. So, you know, the kids are from Transylvania, you know, just like right. Hotel Transylvania, but, you know, a show. But, right. um. She got the playhouse for it, and it does like eighty things. Like, and I'm like, this is this is a dream, like a yeah. toy that like actually does things you can see on the show. No way. See, and, the, and one of the great tragedies in the wake of the '80s is so GI Joe and He-Man made playsets. You know, He-Man had Snake Mountain and Castle Grayskull and the Attorney of Playset, and G.I. Joe had the USS Flag, the greatest thing ever made in yep. the history yep. of ever. That is, that is the best toy, I think, that has ever been. It's true. Um, I've been in the presence of it, and it's as magnificent as people say. Um, but um, then the playsets really dried up, and only fashion figures have playsets now, and it's a shame. And they're amazing. They're incredible. The... Um, to try to get away from the boys' toys and girls' toys and, you know, war toys and dolls, um, I really embrace the terms action figure and fashion figure. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I, I, I like that. Yeah. And the WWE made clear the difference, and I really admire them for this. Action figures don't have posable hair. Fashion figures do. That's the oh, only wow. difference. I yeah. really like that. That's awesome. Yeah, because you look at like some of the superhero uh, toys for uh, in the uh, away from the the traditional action aisle. I'm sorry, I gotta go use the, the common vernacular out. You know, the girls' aisles, and they're just as posable. They have combat armor and weapons and all of that stuff. Everything's there. They're just like the toys in the boys' aisles, but their hair is brushable. That's the only difference. And at the end of the day, that's what distinguishes the action figures from the dolls is the hair. So fashion figures have brushable hair. Action figures do not. That's, I, I like, I'm going to use that distinction from now on. 
it's it's a great distinction. It works really well, and I, I learned about it from the WWE. And it's cool. I I love I love having a daughter in Saudi Arabia right now. Right. I, I I love having a daughter and having when we go to like the toy store, which you know is now the subset of a big store now instead of a whole store. Thanks, Toys R Us. Um, uh, investment bankers. Yes, investment bankers. But um, it's cool that like she goes to every aisle. Mm-hmm. She wants to look at all of it. It's not like, and I I wouldn't care like if she was only drawn to the fashion figures or whatever. But she wants to look everywhere, and she'll usually pick something of like the two different types. And I'm like, unprovoked. I'm like, this is amazing. Like yeah. you know, <laughs> it it makes me happy, and also it 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 shows the difference in the way that they're receiving their uh, marketing too, because marketing is less afraid of marketing only to one demographic. Like mm-hmm. I've seen like, you know, the shows on Nickelodeon there for every, you know, he man GI Joe style commercial. There's, you know, some other bonkers, you know, girl f- mm-hmm. uh, fashion or with, with like a lore behind it and everything. And I'm like, they're going all out with this stuff these days. Huh? <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, like when I, I teach kung fu to younger kids and like middle and uh, up that's super school. cool too. I didn't even touch on that during this. Uh, it's, it's not that interesting, <laughs> um, but I try to mention that kind of stuff too. I, I, you know, when kids talk about toys, I'll try to talk about Barbies and transform yeah, as much as I talk about Transformers and whatnot with my nephews and nieces when we would go to the go to the store because I'm you know a thirty nine year old five year old. I go to the toy aisle. But I was always like, let's go look at the Barbies. Let's go look at, you know, and try to praise them the same way I'd talk about how cool the Transformers were. Exactly. And, and it's really made an impact. And, um, but yeah, man. Fashion figures and action figures, they're both awesome. I'm currently looking at um, my pop vinyl of Hup mm-hmm. from the Dark Crystal that I just picked up. I it makes it. me so happy. My dog. Hup made Hup is just wonderful. That show, that show. I just I just did a whole episode of the show with my brother raving about that damn thing because that was our jam when we were little. Oh, like yeah. that that movie was on all the time. Nice. Yeah, everybody had that one movie that scared them that they couldn't stop watching. For that me, was the one. The movie yeah. scared the shit out of us. For me, it was the uh, Bakshi Lord of the Rings. Oh God. Yeah. That's intense. Uh huh. Yeah, it probably explains my therapy bill these days. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, the Black Riders in that one. Oh, oh, oh boy! All right, so tell me about this game, buddy. Oh, you, why don't we just talk for like six more hours? It's fine okay, with no me. Problem. No, so so you've enjoyed being on. I take very it. much so. This has been right. delightful. We'll we'll, we'll get you back on because I feel like I we would, can talk about lots of stuff. So I this, would be delighted, please. So yes. so, th- so this game, since you've uh-huh. never heard of it before, it makes me so happy when someone hasn't heard of it before. Um. I... So this game, um, I created it with a buddy at work. We we come up with movie games to pass the time. We were out to lunch, and, you know, this is like 12 years ago now. You start with, oh, you know, you ever played Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon, you know, and all that, and you go back and forth. And then we started creating our own. Mm-hmm. And we came up with one called Director Speed Dating that's fun but kind of hard to do in a group setting because you need to be super geeky. But Director Speed Dating was like, okay, you've got Guillermo del Toro and Robert Rodriguez. Mm-hmm. And one person has one director and one person has the other. And you have to mad lib back and forth. And so the back and forth was like, okay, so you've got Robert Rodriguez. It's a movie about a little girl in trouble. Because it's Robert Rodriguez, right? And then you've got Guillermo del Toro, who is also a bug. 
you know, it's stuff mm. like that. And so, but, but then we came up with this one that really stuck and it was called right quote, wrong movie. Mm-hmm. And, and the idea behind it is you, you throw a movie title out there and mm-hmm. you have to attach a quote to it. That's not from that movie, but fits. So Got for it. example, the passion of the Christ, if someone asks, if you're a God, you say, yes, nice. Um, Titanic, I think you're going to need a bigger boat, mm. you know, stuff like that. So I took it. And for my Blockbuster Live, I actually had it in existence physically printed. So that's what I sent you pictures of. I turned it into a Cards Against Humanity apples to apples style game where I have blue cards here that have movie titles. And you have 10 cards with movie quotes. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to pull a blue card and you and I are going to come up with funny quotes to go along with it and make each other laugh. Gotcha. That's literally it. (laughs) Just just for fun. Because it's a cool icebreaker or thing to do at the end. um, Yeah. so our first film submitted for your approval is The Terminator. The Terminator. Yes, and we both need to come up with a quote. So you do you have your pictures I sent you? I do. Okay. All right. I love the smell of napalm in the morning. Perfect. I wouldn't give you a gun if it was World War Three. <laughs> Tremors. <laughs> good man. Um, oh. I don't know. I think those are both really damn good. Who, who do you think won? Yours. All right, so one round to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, splash. It's early. Don't get cocky. Splash. Oh, you know this it's not blood. It's tomato juice. Okay, so you do know splash. All right. <laughs> um, let's see. I'm not as plausible as a tough guy because I have an effeminate voice. What is that from? Con Air. That is the great um, John Malkovich as Cyrus the Virus. Huh. I don't remember <laughs> that quote. I gotta watch Con Air again. I love Con Air. But yours, right. is, like, yours is too perfect because it just speaks to horrible, horrible mermaid sex. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of, this all just comes back to the same thing. Yeah, the Little Mermaid tentacle hentai. Oh, God. Uh, I'm going to get in so much trouble. So uh, speaking of that, the Little Mermaid was also the movie at Blockbuster that would always get returned with someone's homemade porn tape in it instead of the real movie. Why is that in your VCR at the same time that you're watching Little Mermaid? This doesn't make any sense. Look, I'm not going to lie, man. Ariel was hot. Don't judge me. It's true. Do you know that the woman who did her voice spent all the time after that movie doing Christian rock songs? Oh, my God. I know that because I went to elementary school, and that's all we'd listen to in music class. That's a shame. Yep. She would sing songs about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and all of this other stuff. Yeah. And it was like bad, like early 90s, like J-pop wannabe Oh, wow. Uh, oh, yeah, dude. It was terrible. Oh, you, should, you should look it up. It's horrendous. No, I'm good. I'm good. I'm going to stick with my tentacle porn. Thank you very All much. All right. Our, our next movie is The Fly, speaking of tentacle porn. Chicken Parmesan <laughs> isn't vegan? <laughs> That's my favorite quote from that movie. I've never seen that movie, to be honest. Oh, you have to. That that So that's... It, to, to maybe sell you on seeing it... Mm-hmm. In that particular scene, Brendan Ruth, mm-hmm. Superman, yep. um, is a bassist for an evil rock band that's fighting against Scott Pilgrim in this mm-hmm. scene. And his superpower is that he's vegan. That's it. But it gives him like Super Saiyan, like Dragon Ball Z powers, 
which is hilarious. And weirder than I was told. And 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 Scott Pilgrim wins against him by um, Princess Bride style, faking him into drinking a latte that wasn't made with um, soy milk. <laughs> And then the vegan police show up, and one of the vegan police is the guy that played, uh, um, fucking, uh, oh, the Punisher in the first Punisher movie. What's his name? Thomas Jane. Yeah. And, and, and they show up and they arrest him, and well, they steal his vegan powers. And he's like, "This is the third offense. What's the se- what's the first offense?" And then they go, well, "What's the second offense?" <laughs> on on August the twenty second, you ate an entire plate of chicken parmesan. Chicken Parmesan isn't vegan. <laughs> the movie is freaking genius. Anyway, uh, what do I got? You're we're at uh, yes. two one to you. Yes, and and I and I have a hand of ten as well. I'm not just looking through my entire stack. Um, Jesus, I am what psychiatrists call alpha male. The fly. Yours wins. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> I don't have a good hand for the fly. Um, a- all right. Well, we'll play another one. This is fun. Desperado. Desperado. Speaking of Robert Rodriguez. AK-47. The very best there is when you absolutely positively got to kill every motherfucker in the room except no substitutes. Yeah, I, I don't think there's going to be a better one than that. So I'll go with Paradise Lost. Found it. <laughs> Oh, I do want to watch the Desperado where they say that, though. Have you ever seen that movie? That's from Behind the Mask, The Rise of Leslie Vernon. Mm-hmm. That movie's genius. Mm. Anyway, so that's right, quote, wrong movie. Nice. Um, I really, really appreciate you um, taking time out to talk with me and play that. Absolutely, man. I had an absolute blast. Thank you very much for having me on the show. Oh, no, of course, dude. And it's very late. So before I go, um, tell tell the people something you want to tell them or point them in the direction of where they can read, find, or just tell them something. My name is Robert Aldrich. I'm a writer and novelist. My website is teachthesky.com, and you can find new short stories first Friday of every month and links to all the books. That's awesome, dude. I, I really appreciate it. And as always, this has been The Chippa, um, patreon.com slash The Chippa. The Chippa Made This is my Twitter name, also where you can find all my various podcasts. Um, every dollar you give me helps me keep talking to really interesting people like Robert here. And um, please go over to his site and check out his stuff um, because it sounds awesome and I can't wait to dig into it. Um, as always, this has been me. And this has been Robert Aldrich. Thank you for shooting the shit with Chippa, good sir.